over the years, especially in youth ministry, I used to hear this, but uh, I hear it among when I was doing my men's ministry. I would hear this familiar statement. What's the big deal if my sin isn't hurting anyone? What's the big deal if I, you know, engage in, in sin X at home when nobody's there? doesn't affect anyone. It's not hurting anyone. It's okay, right? They're just private sins. But what we need to understand is that all sin is first and foremost against God, but also that all sin eventually will hurt others because the fruit of that sin will eventually sprout. This is what we've been seeing in Psalm 51 over and over again. Sure, David thought, well, I don't think this is going to totally unravel Israel. Uriah will never find out. But all sin always hurts others. And everything that's done in darkness will be brought to light. But there's another side to that coin. If all sin hurts others, then the person who is restored by God and teaches others God's ways will bless others. And so this is what we're going to see here in Psalm 51 with David, is that as David is being restored by God, he now becomes a blessing to others. David's hope is that he can affect others toward righteousness. That by teaching others their ways and seeking God's face, he would be able to strengthen the people of God. And that's extremely important because so often if we were to just reflect on the seasons of life where God has exposed our sin, crushed us with the weight of our sin, and then brought us to that place of restoration, we're so personally thankful, but have we then taken the next step to use that in the lives of others? David is very open about that, and he seeks to do that as the king of Israel. And it's important that you and I do that. It's important that the, everything we've experienced in God that's restorative, we then desire to see that in the lives of other people. And so our first point today is going to be see is that David is asking God to do good to his people. He says here, by your favor, do good to Zion. Now, really important question before we go any further. I want you to take five seconds and just think about this in your head. What is meant by Zion? Because he says here, by your favor, do good to Zion. So what's, what is Zion? Who is Zion? It's really important we get that right. The, the, the word Zion first appears in the book of 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is actually the first place we see it. Verses 6 and 7. 2 Samuel verses, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 read, then the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, 
And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn away thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, that is the city of David. It's the first reference to Zion. It's when Jerusalem was captured. One chapter later, in chapter 6, verse 12, we read, Then it was told to King David, saying, Yahweh has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so the ark of the covenant is being brought in here into Jerusalem. It was, it was made of wood. It was overlaid with gold. It was to be kept in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple when the temple was built in Jerusalem. And that's important because it was believed, it was the, the belief that that this is where God's presence dwelt. God's presence dwelt among his people in the city of David. And climax, climax point of that was at the, at the ark. And that what's important for you and I to realize as we understand this verse here in Psalm 51 is that the ark of the covenant that's in the city of David, which is Jerusalem, that's called Zion, was associated with God's presence. And so you can say Zion is where the presence of God was. It's where God dwelt. Physical Zion was Jerusalem. However, you and I, what's, what's amazing is we have the privilege of knowing the full counsel of God, right? We have all the other scriptures that David didn't. And so this term, Zion, takes on a completely fuller richer, deeper understanding than David knew at that time. And so let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically we're going to look at verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is what we're celebrating here at Christmas. We saw that in the Old Testament, what made Zion so precious was that God's presence was there. But in the coming of Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, becomes God with us. Jesus is the ultimate true Zion. But as we saw this morning, you and I are united to Christ. So if Jesus is the true Zion, then you and I as the people of God are the corporate Zion. We're citizens of Zion. As followers of Christ, the Spirit of God lives in us. God's presence is with us. And so the believing body can be called the Zion of God. So why do I unpack all of that? Because now understanding Zion, look at Psalm 51. By your favor, do good to Zion. 
by your favor, do good to the people of God in Christ. David is asking for God to do a good to the covenant people. David has experienced this goodness, and now he's interceding on the behalf of the people of God for that goodness to be done to them. And so he says, do good to them. The good received is the good he desires for others. David knew wrath, judgment is what he deserved, but instead he received grace and forgiveness. David has experienced God's merciful goodness. And think about this impact it has on David. You get Psalm 51, you get Psalm 32. He's completely undone, but then completely put back together. And so overwhelming, so amazing was this experience of what God has done for him. That David says, do good for Zion. Do good for all of them. What I have, I want you to give to everyone who's part of Zion. And so that's his cry. That's what he desires for them. David was not going to keep quiet. He was going to share. He was going to ask for that blessing to pour out. And so as we think about that, just that first line there, by your favor, do good to Zion. The question we have to ask is, is that true for us? First and foremost, have we experienced forgiveness and restoration as David has? through? God? And secondly, if we have, have we opened our mouths in prayer, asking for God to do that same good to the people of Zion? When was the last time you were so broken by your sin and then so restored by God? And you said, that whole process, do that for other people, God. Do that for Jim. Do that for Bob. Do that for for Rebecca. Do that for Lisa. Do that for my kids. Do that for my wife. Do good to them. And it's an interesting good he's talking about here. We're going to get into that in a second, but again, any good that Zion receives is because they've been given to it, given it to them by the king of Zion. Notice he says, by your favor, do good to Zion. He's also recognizing that the king of Zion is the one who, which isn't him. He's a, a, a dele- he has, he's been delegated some authority, but he's not the true king of Jerusalem. He's not the true king of Zion. Yahweh is. And so he says, by your favor, do good to them. Any good that the people of Zion receives comes from the king of Zion, which is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Any restoration we receive is because he has, by his favor, done good to us. David said in in Psalm 51, in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He recognizes, no, I don't, I can't do good for anyone because I have no good. I'm not good. The king of Zion must be the one to do good. Now let's think about what David has experienced in this psalm. He has had his sin put right before him. He has recognized that from the womb, he's a sinner. He's been so overwhelmed by 
by the weight of his sin that God has exposed, he feels as if his bones are crushed. And he says, that's goodness. Do that for them. It's a radical redefinition of, of, how our, of goodness compared to how we use it today. We have pie-in-the-sky Christianity around here. We think it's God's goodness because little, little Becky gets into the, a great college. God's so good to me. But it, how about if little Becky gets exposed, God exposes her sin that she's struggling with, you know, and as I, I saw it at the time as a youth pastor, great kid, great grades, great extracurriculars, struggles with depression, is cutting herself. God exposes that and parents say, what's happening? Why is God doing this? Because God is good. That is the goodness of God because he's showing you the true condition and the true need. David is saying here, by your favor, do good design after he has just listed all the crushing weight of sin that God has shown him. And so he's asking, do that for others. Shine the spotlight on your people so that they can see what I've seen in myself and they can see the need they have that you have provided for me. This is not pie in the sky goodness. Churches think it's good because, man, God is really being good to us. Look how big we've got it. That, sure, that may be a good thing God's done, but, but that's the, ultimately we need to look at et- what's eternally good. What is the eternal good God is trying to bring about in our lives? What was the eternal good that God was bringing about David? It wasn't to restore him as king of Israel. It was to restore him as a child of God. It was to pull him out of his depravity and bring him back into fellowship. And this is what he's saying here. By your favor, do good to them. And the context of Psalm 51 is how we understand good. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. David is looking at those types of things as the good that God provides. There's a certain goodness that God gives to Zion, to his people, to us, that comes from admitting our sinful condition. It is a good thing when God exposes spiritual apathy in our lives. When God exposes that someone has an anger problem. When God shows you that you're struggling with alcohol. When God reveals an adulterous heart. When God reveals hypocrisy in the church you and the work you. That is the good that he's doing to Zion. He's showing them their condition. And it's good because it's not only to see your condition that you can see your need. And that you can receive that good from God that restores. Now, I said that corporate Zion is the people of God, you and I. And so you and I can, can do something that David couldn't. And that's the fact that we can rejoice that God has shown his greatest good to Zion in sending the king of Zion to save, sanctify, and glorify his people. David and all those Old Testament saints were looking for the day that the king of Zion would truly arrive, the true king of Zion. We live in light of his coming. 
And so we can rejoice and know that the greatest good God has done to Zion is the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King, who truly saves, who truly sanctifies, and one day will fully glorify us. That's why words matter. Do you see how much can be missed if we don't stop and ask, who and what is Zion? Because there's a whole lot of beauty in there. And what we see here in David's request is that when we are restored, we seek for God to do that restorative good in others. Restored saints seek the good of others to be restored. We want people to experience the goodness we received. Painful? Yes. Good? Infinitely. Infinitely good. I think all of us, if we thought about it for 10 seconds, could think of painful things God has brought us through. But the good that came out of the other end of that. And that we wouldn't give those experiences up for anything. And they were painful. Do good design, he says. Next, he says, build the walls of Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting because there's some debate here um, among commentators. Some people believe that building the walls of Jerusalem refers to the walls in Nehemiah. Others say, you know, the walls during David's time didn't have that whole problem and situation. There's good arguments on both sides. However, in the context of poetic literature like this, I tend to agree lean toward the side that this is imagery language with some most commentators because walls were symbols of, of protection of power and protection walls is, would guard a city from invaders and enemies in proverbs it says that a man without discipline is like a city with no walls and so what david is asking here build the walls of jerusalem protect your people this is a a request now for God to protect and strengthen the people of God. David is hoping that his situation has that kind of effect, that the people of God are protected and strengthened because God is building the walls of Jerusalem. We see the language all throughout the New Testament of building up cornerstone, first Peter, the cornerstones. We see this language that we are a body, a building being put together, a temple, right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what he's asking here is the people of God, that city of God, keep them safe. It makes sense that David would request that. Because the walls that he's asking for were obviously he either climbed the wall or the wall was broken down in his life, maybe a lack of discipline, and he fell into his sin. But he wants the people of God and where they reside to be a place of holy protection. It's a request for Yahweh to protect his people. So Matthew chapter 16. Verse 18. And I also say to you 
that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see how there's a promise there that God will protect his church? The gates of hell shall not overpower it, shall not have victory. I will build my church, and I will protect the church. This is a promise. Again, the fulfillment in Christ. Where, where, where physical Zion needed walls of stone, corporate Zion has the wall of Christ around it. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse three. But the Lord is faithful who will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. He will put a wall around you. He will put a wall around his Zion, the people of Zion, his people. We will be protected. We will be guarded. We'll be strengthened. It's a beautiful thing. We see in Revelation that there is a wall, a fence, around the new Jerusalem. It's interesting. Why would there need to be a wall around it? We can speculate, but at the very least, it communicates that it is a place of protection. It is a protected, guarded, strengthened place. But again, build the walls of Jerusalem tells us something else. Who is David asking to build the walls? He's asking God to build them because God is the one who builds and strengthens his church. God does that. David could have said, as he said earlier, when he asked, can I build the temple? And it was good that it was in his heart, but it wasn't for him to do. There seems to be a shift here. David's no longer asking to do that. David is asking God to build this wall to strengthen his bride. David, a man after God's own heart, recognizes that if God doesn't build the walls, Jerusalem won't be safe. This is, again, why I believe this is imagery here for a spiritual truth. David has his eye beyond physical Zion onto corporate Zion beyond physical Jerusalem, onto corporate Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. He has his eyes focused on them. And it's a cry to build the church, to protect the church. Listen to Psalm 147, verse 2. One forty-seven, verse 2 reads, Yahweh builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Again, it is Yahweh who builds up Jerusalem. He builds Jerusalem and he builds her walls. He builds his church. He protects and strengthens his church. You know, so often we get caught up in the foolishness of thinking that we are the ones that have to really give ourselves to building the church. We have to build the church. 
we have to get the right building. We have to get the right audio. We have to get the right seating. We have to get the right aesthetic. We have to have the right sales pitch. We have to read the right books. We have to have the right outreach program because if not, we will not, the church won't grow. But it is God who builds the walls of Jerusalem. It is God who builds up, builds up the people. It is God who protects his church. Now we, uh, you know, as a pastor and, and, and Phil, dad, as an elder, we act as, as guards, as, as shepherds, under shepherds, as, as you know, sheepdogs to try to, to protect. But it's a delegated protection because the ultimate protection and purity of the church are from the walls that God has built because he protects. That goes back to Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not, Hades shall not prevail against it or overcome it. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. And coming to him, meaning Jesus, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. He builds the wall. He builds his church. He's building us up as a spiritual house. He builds the church. God does this. Or how about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47? We often reference that passage to talk about how the early church conducted worship. And that's important to notice. But that's not all that's there. Listen. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all people. Here it is. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. God builds his church. God strengthens his church. God protects his church. We simply have to walk in obedience. Jesus will build the walls of, of Jerusalem. The king of Zion will build the walls of Zion. So what does that demand of us, right? We have to ask, okay, so how do we respond to this? It's, it's, it's really counterintuitive. Do less, pray more. Do less and pray more. David said, God build the walls of Jerusalem. This is David. He had enough money. He had the resources. He had the, the manpower for labor. He could have built the walls of Jerusalem. If in fact they are physical walls he's referring to. He's the king of Israel. But instead he says, God, can you build the wall? I need you to build the walls of Jerusalem. We need to get past looking at what we can do and ask God to do it. We need to do less and pray more. It profits nothing to, exp to, 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 to exhaust our resources if God isn't the one building it. 
God has to be the one to build the walls. We see then here, he says in verse 19, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. David's coming to a close here and he's reminding us that there will be a time that sacrifices, outward sacrifices are, are to be performed again, but they're all going to flow from everything that's come in these last 18 verses. And that's from a pure heart, a pure, broken and contrite heart. Outward sacrifices must reflect inward posture of the heart. If they're going to be accepted. That's why we see that first word, then. As a result of, is another way to say, as a result of all this, you'll delight in righteous sacrifices. As a result of a broken and contrite heart, you'll delight in the right sacrifices. As a result of the good you do design and the walls you build up, then you will delight in the right sacrifices. Listen to Psalm chapter four, Psalm 4, verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Righteous sacrifices must flow from a trust in God. David has been brought to that place where he said he recognizes all I have is Yahweh. I have nothing else. I have all I have is my trust in him. Righteous sacrifices and trust in Yahweh. Because you can't offer a sacrifice to, of righteousness to God without trust in him, because then it's without faith. God never wanted them in, in, in Psalm 51 to stop performing these commanded ritual sacrifices but he wanted them not to come from a place of tradition, but from a place of contrition. He wanted the broken heart to be what they brought to the altar, along with the animal to be sacrificed. They always had to put their heart on the altar before the animal they put on the altar. So he says, then I will delight in righteous sacrifices. God has, David is praying that his circumstances here, would create this kind of effect in Israel among the people of God. He's praying and by the grace of God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, us as well. Notice it says here, then you will delight. It does say here that Yahweh, God will delight in these sacrifices in these righteous sacrifices. And the reason they're righteous sacrifices is because they're righteous sacrifices that have a right heart and are walking in obedience. God delights in acts of obedience when they flow from a humbled heart that has been brought to repentance. And so this is what he wants the people of God's experience is what he's experienced. Essentially, David's saying, 
if I went to this whole thing that I've gone through, if nothing else, I wanted to have this effect on my people. I want them to, to know what true repentance is, what true brokenness of sin is, and what true restoration is. So that when they go and they make these sacrifices, that they're done in a righteous manner. So they're not just walking up there in tradition, but they're walking up there with contrition. Verse 19 is saying, then true worship will really be happening in Israel once again. Then you'll delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt and whole burnt and offering and whole burnt offering. And then young bulls will be offered on the altar. Worship will then be done rightly. That's what he's looking for, that his circumstances that he got himself in, his sinful actions, that it would be used of God to bring about a true reformation of worship in Israel. You can't have revival without brokenness. Both in your own life and in the life of the church, in the life of Zion. And so ultimately, though, what I find so beautiful here is that you and I don't have to kill young bulls and offer them on the altar anymore. That's done. Why is that done? I can't think of anything more fitting to read to end Psalm 51 than Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and in sacrifices for sin, you have not taken, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 10 show us Jesus is the final and ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice that God will, the Father will forever delight in. The sacrifice made once and for all. By your favor, do good to Zion. He has. He's given us Christ. Build the walls of Jerusalem. He has. We are protected and nourished in Christ. Daniel delight in righteous sacrifices. He delights fully in Christ. In burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Never again to be happened because Christ is the sacrifice once and for all for sinners. What David longed for, we've received. And so when we have a broken and contrite heart, we know that we can truly be forgiven and restored because as we saw this morning, we are in Christ Jesus. And with that, Psalm 51 
is done. Um, before I close out in prayer, any questions, final thoughts uh, on, on this glorious psalm? I feel like we can spend a whole nother series going through it and there'd be a whole bunch of new stuff. But um, since we're on Zoom, it gives us some time if anybody had questions or thoughts. All right. If there aren't any questions or thoughts. Uh, you have one, Janet? Okay, I just saw your camera pop on, so. All righty. Well, let me close this out in a word of prayer then. Father God, we come before you now, thankful for your word, thankful that you continue to, to guide us by your word, sanctify us, sanctify us by your word, conform us into the image of Christ by your word. But it's not your word alone, it's your Holy Spirit working through your word in our lives. And so, Father, we, we end this series with thankful, full hearts, and we pray these words of David back. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place and you guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will give you insight and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose harness are a bit in a bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in Yahweh, us who trust in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround us. We will be glad in you, Yahweh, and rejoice, you righteous ones. And we will shout for joy, all of us who are upright in heart. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son so that our sin could be covered, our iniquity could be washed away, and we could be forgiven and adopted into your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.